where we're giving the world a voice. We are a faith-based social justice forum where individuals give their perspectives on various topics. It's an opportunity to express their viewpoint, their stance, and their angle on justice issues affecting the community and globally. Each episode features guests presenting their perspective on things like climate change, the church, urban farming, and food insecurity, all through a unique faith lens. Come check us out. Give us your perspective. Welcome to Perspectives on Social Justice, where we are continuing to give the world a voice. I am Lara Lane White, your host, and today we are continuing our 2020 focus on food security and farming. For our viewers and podcast listeners, we produce a monthly spotlight on this topic every fourth Thursday of the month. And so food security, food insecurity, that is, has been identified as this country's leading issue, second only to the pandemic, where the CDC reports even this week that African-Americans are still dying at a rate three times that of white Americans. But while COVID-19 has been labeled uh, as America's pandemic, food insecurity has been identified as America's epidemic. President Biden, in his announcement concerning his executive order on equity, has reported that one in seven American households, that includes one out of every four African-American households and one out of five Latino households, report that they do not have enough food to eat. So this week's Justice Spotlights, the passion of the urban farmer and their contributions to the economy, their contributions to their communities, and their perspectives on this issue of equity on the food landscape. We celebrate these young urban gardeners by recognizing just a few things that number one, they are producers of urban agriculture. They sell at local food markets. They typically get a better deal compared to the traditional food system revenue structures. They help fight climate change as activists, reducing air pollution in green spaces with carbon, uh, carbon absorbing yields. And most importantly, they support their communities, the communities that they live and operate in by lending their expertise to help others to cultivate a knowledge of living off the land. And so tonight I have invited some uh, very talented and gifted uh, urban farmers to, to join us in, in dialogue. And I'm, I'm going to let them uh, introduce themselves to you, uh, individual. Why don't you? Why don't you start out, Tanisio? I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Oh, you're frozen. Okay, Eva. Ladies first. I don't know what I was thinking. Why don't you start out? <laughs> Hi. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Eva Dickerson. I'm 23. I'm an Aquarius, I use they, she pronouns, and I grow food and work with communities around um, food-based issues here in Atlanta. Um, my day job is that I'm the urban agriculture farm um, program manager at Thomasville Heights Elementary School. So I do a whole lot of things from going growing food to support our community and support our local CSA, um, to building curriculum alongside our teachers to support our young people and learning about their bodies, their minds, their communities, um, and their food and how all of those things connect. I also support the Atlanta Grows A Lot Advisory Committee, um, which is where I had the honor of meeting Dr. White. And um, I'm a member of Green Cloth Collective, which um, is a collection of some young black people who really wanna use um, food and food justice as the foundation for reaching a more pleasurable future. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course, awesome, awesome. Denicio. Hey, you back with us? Yes, really. Can you hear me? Okay. Go ahead and introduce yourself and, uh, you know, talk to us, talk to our viewers about, um, you know, what you're doing in the world. Of sure. Uh, well, thank you for having me. My name is Tanisha Natanasanima. The name of my organization is Nature's New Farm. I am actually the third generation of agrarians in my family on my father's side. Uh, we are actually centurion landowners in the state of Texas, uh, being that we have owned land since 1882. 
And so I definitely take pride in continuing that legacy via my work, not only as an urban farmer, uh, but also as a local food uh, advocate, doing activist work, outreach, and education to the community uh, so that we can make sure that the value of urban agriculture is held high, uh, that people have pride in knowing that their food can come from a hyper-local source and that we are developing an economy uh, that fits the scale that is appropriate for our community uh, and sets a trajectory uh, that should yield some promise as time goes on as we begin to continue to flood up this movement. So thank you for having me. Uh, Peace, Grace. I'm I'm just honored to be uh, amongst these two grandsons. Uh, I'm a neophyte to Atlanta, so I just moved here from Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, but however, uh, growing food is not new to me. My grandfather was a sharecropper. Uh, I've been growing food for about 25 years. I've uh, been working with the la for the last uh, three years with a high school in Kansas City, Missouri, where uh, uh, they send uh, most of the the, and non-English speaking students are sent there. So you have uh, 32 different languages spoken there, kids from all over the world, uh, from Sudan to Guam to Puerto Rico, um, all, over the, all over the globe, literally uh, in this little biodiversity containment unit. So for the last three years, I've been helping them rebuild infrastructure, rebuilding, uh, uh, just uh, helping them establish uh, plant pathology, animal pathology, if you will, and rotating crops. Uh, we grew about 10,000 pounds of food. That, that uh, uh, back in 2018, that post went viral. So I was brought here by community movement builders uh, to become their food sustainability coordinator in uh, efforts to try to start a farmer's market. And we currently uh, work out of Pittsburgh and Mechanicsville. COVID happened, so we redirected a lot of our resources to COVID relief. So now we're just uh, doing a lot of lot of different things, actually, uh, surrounding just growing food and education, teaching people how to grow food, and just collectively trying to aggregate different uh, workers around different uh, urban farms to help help grow growers, if you will. So. And I expressed yeah. uh, a lot of people uh, are wishing they can. They had the talent and the drive that each of you represent, that each of you have, and your dedication. Uh, I am continually impressed and intrigued, and you guys are motivating me to go put on my overalls and get ready to get out there and really do some work. But I'm interested in knowing, because um, you guys are, are definitely, I'm not a millennial, way past the millennial age, but I, part of the reason why I'm so impressed with, with y'all is because a lot of people in my generation and in your generation also, the last thing they're thinking about doing is getting out there and, and getting their hands dirty and, and growing some food. What I want to know from you all is what is your perspective on urban farming, in, in, in especially in the wake of everything that's happening. We got a pandemic going on. We got a new president, presidential administration. What do you see is as the future of urban farming? I, I'd love to hear your perspective, anybody. I want to hear all three from all three of you, but um, anybody can start out. Go ahead, Eva. Oh, I called on. <laughs> um, I was just smiling because I'm really excited to be in this space with people who I know are bringing such dynamic perspectives to urban farming. So thank you so much for gathering us here. Um, today, in preparation for this conversation, I was sitting with Freedom Farmers by Dr. Monica White, which yes. did such a beautiful and fantastic job of outlining how the work that we're all doing, which is connecting Black people back to the land, is such sacred ancestral work that is literally so much a part of the black history in this country. Um, and every every paragraph I felt like I was underlining and underlining and underlining, but the word I kept coming back to, the word I kept writing in the margins, yes! The great, great. The word I kept coming back to was strategy because Dr. White was really uplifting strategies that our people in, the creative, in their creative brilliance 
um, they built to pull themselves out of the situations that capitalism and white supremacy had thrust onto them. So to me, urban farming is just strategy. One day we will leave these poisonous cities en masse and return back to the earth, prayerfully return back to Africa. Um, but we know as urban farmers that these cities aren't it and they're built off of structures that can't maintain the fullness of our lives and the fullness of our culture. And so this, for me at least, is temporary. Like one day I want the food that we're growing and the, the skills that we're practicing to be enough to dismantle these cities and get us out of here. Tanisio, mm -hmm. you sound like you're ready to talk, Wayne. Uh, well, yeah, you know, um, one, I want to definitely echo what my sister just indicated. You know, I brought a stack of books with me as references. So Freedom Farmers is right on top. Um, and so I won't even belabor the things that have already been said because the book is, is quite impressive and is one I encourage many people to get. Um, and in the vein of that, you know, focus that uh, Dr. White placed on us, uh, I think it's very important to also have a Sankofa moment, if you will, and go back and look at um, strategies that were used in the past and really begin to figure out how we can morph and use them in the present moment. Why I bring that up is I have a book here called The Movable School Goes to the Negro Farmer. This is actually the autobiography of Thomas Monroe Campbell, who was the first cooperative extension agent. Most people do not know that cooperative extension began at Tuskegee University. And Thomas Monroe Campbell was a uh, co-staff member, if you will, to Dr. George Washington Carver. And so uh, both Dr. Carver as well as Thomas Monroe Campbell uh, were quite famous for instituting what is known as the Jessup Wagon, which eventually became Booker T. Washington Mobile School on Wheels, where they literally went around to the community and provided the education uh, to those local farmers, other agrarians, other homesteaders that had been uh, researched and developed within the school itself. And they knew they had to do this because not all of our community members were able to attend uh, that illustrious institution at the time of its founding. And so they made it uh, an obligation of theirs, if you will, to go to the people. And so why I bring that up is in this moment in time, especially with the onslaught of uh, COVID, you know, it's a grand opportunity for us to do just what we're doing now, provide this education to our community, have them really understand the value of local agricultural activity in all its forms, whether it be food, whether it be textiles, fuels and measures, you name it. Uh, this is a grand opportunity. And so at Nature's Candy Farms in particular, we've really placed a lot of focus on that in the last year and moving forward, we plan to do more. But just going door to door and really seeing how the people's needs can be met using this vehicle known as urban agriculture. And so I feel like it's just a nod to the ancestors to continue that work on that they did, you know, uh, almost a hundred years ago now. Agree. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree both both of what they said. I think for 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 me personally, uh, I believe that growing food is one of the most pro black things you can do to liberate yourself. Sticking your hands in the soil keeps you connected to the ancestors. It puts minerals in your body. So, uh, you know, I know that I look young, but I have a twenty two year old son. I've been growing food. My grandfather, who, like I said, was a sharecropper, he came back from World War II. I started growing food because he couldn't get a job as a foreman, started his own business. But having 11, ha having 11 children, you just had to grow food. So I come from an era where right after everyone was beginning to stop kind of grow gardens, if you will, but people were starting to reduce, reuse, recycle. So that was, I'm big on the heavy, uh, you know, reducing your carbon footprint, making sure that, you know, you're eating right. My mother always had the food pyramid on her, her refrigerator, on, on our refrigerator. We never got to eat junk food, tang, Kool-Aid. It was always apple, orange, carrot, celery, whatever we wanted to eat for a snack. So my body, you know, just naturally became to where uh, I had to start eating to where uh, the sustenance that I was getting at the store was not uh, providing me the nutrients that I needed because processed foods, you know, they replace sugar with high fructose corn syrup. That was one of the first things. And then everybody we know has somebody, somebody dealing with high blood pressure, diabetes, 
And so the first thing I started doing, uh, recognizing it was that we needed to decolonize our diet. And so everybody was, was on that kick of decolonizing their diet. Um, in Kansas City, it went from one year growing, uh, you know, having uh, about 20 to 30 farms in these community gardens to like 120, it just boomed. A lot of people just started growing food, but it became sort of a trendy, a lot of colonialism and a lot of people who didn't look like me were really dominating, creating terms like master gardener when, uh, and asking me if I was a master gardener when I'm like, my grandfather, we, we like, we taught y'all how to how grow, grow, grow this stuff. Before y'all was trading humans, you were trading rice, sugar and corn and who, so my grandmother being Choctaw Kickapoo, my grandfather being the, the, the son and, and child of a of slave, you know, I see both ends, you know, so the land belongs in the commons and still just uplifting, you know, our native cousins and indigenous folks who came before us. Like it's just staying connected to that is the most important thing and just reconnecting again, going back to Sankofa, going back to the teachers, going back to uh, being as a strategy. It's just uh, food, clothing, shelter, health, wellness, home security, uh, home defense, self-defense. Those are the foundations for, for nation building and Black Wall Street thrived because of black farmers. Nobody was getting their flowers for funerals. Their butcher, their meat, their, their, their shoes shined to slick, their, their rendered fat, whatever they was using, they got it from black farmers. And that's how Black Wall Street thrived. And until, until black folks realize that there will be no building of generational wealth. And so, 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 from a historical perspective, you, your opinions are very well informed. Uh, but I wonder, uh, what do you see? I mean, obviously, you you guys grew up in this, and and like I say, your perspectives are well informed. But what do you see, urban farming, the future of urban farming? Like, do you see more people, um, you know, actually trying to get out there? Or, I mean. What do you what do you see urban farming going? We we know from a historical perspective what um you know what has transpired and we'll talk about that a little bit, but where do y'all see this going? Or do you feel like you guys are the only, you know, and and, and others like you are really the only pioneers in, in wanting to to re-engage or continue to engage in farming? What are your feelings about that? Because I wonder where it's going myself. Um, this is Tanidio. What I would say is, you know, we have to definitely look at just holistic trends. So first and foremost, uh, at this point, roughly 50% of uh, the Earth's populations actually live in an urban metropolis. Uh, and that percentage continuing to go up. Uh, someone suggested by 2050, about 75% of the planet's inhabitants will actually be in an urban environment. Uh, this is actually documented by what is known as the Milan Urban uh, policy hack. Uh, but all of that being said, you're really looking at opportunities, if you will, uh, for many of the sectors that had been isolated from the urban areas to now be championed by the urban areas. Uh, uh, one book that really lends to that trend is a book known as Harvesting Opportunity that was published by the Federal Reserve in 2018. And it covers everything from community economic investment to what is known as organic hotspots, where they talk about if you have a high density of sustainable farmers, then you not only see the uh, household income of an area increase, uh, but you also see crime rates go down. So, you know, when we look at urban farming as one of those uh, vehicles, if you will, that heavily focuses on sustainable agriculture, then we know that some of the byproducts of that work are going to be some of the ancillary benefits that have already been mentioned, the ecological benefits, financial and social. Um, and so when you have a high density of people that are receiving that type of support, uh, then it's inevitable that you're going to find that I think a lot of the ills, if you will, that are uh, always popularly uh, uh, quoted that happen in the urban environment will actually begin to rectify themselves. Now that doesn't absolve, right, any of the uh, responsibility of those who have been accountable for creating a lot of those issues in the community uh, from also playing their role. Uh, but I would say it's very important for us to remain as self-sufficient as possible. And urban uh, agriculture holistically has so many different ancillary benefits that it provides to the community that I could just really see a lot of people who you know, had trajectories for their life 
finding ways to integrate that into agriculture, even when they did, when even when they didn't expect that they would be able to. Okay. Anybody else? Maurice, you want to? <laughs> no, go ahead. Okay. Um, I I like where Tunisia was thinking. It especially struck me um, that seventy five percent. Did you say seventy five percent? Or yeah. Um, of us would live in urban spaces. Urban spaces, yeah. yeah. I that that brought up a lot of mixed feelings for me. Um, I don't know where urban farming will go, but I can say where I fear it will go and where I hope it will go. Um, one of the biggest fears I have with urban farming is co-optation by the larger white power structure, as we see they like to do. Um, there's hot meals in schools right now because after the federal government criminalized and terrorized the Black Liberation Army, specifically the Black Panther Party, they stole the free breakfast program from the Black Panthers and acted like it was federal policy this entire time. Um, the food justice movement that's largely led by Black women and Black queer people um, that championed, as Brother Tunisio mentioned, accountability for the white supremacist construction of our cities was co-opted um, by this movement of predominantly young, um, upper middle class white people who think that shopping at their local farmer's market and shopping local is enough to combat their own racism and um, internalized white supremacy, actually inherent white supremacy. So that is my fear that a movement that is rooted in radical struggle, that is rooted in decolonialism will somehow be liberalized, um, as we can see is the trend, especially in Atlanta, you know, um, and appropriated from its radical black roots. Um, my hope for the future of urban farming is that we will start incorporating more of the voices of disabled people, um, fat people, more of the voices of people who are undocumented um, and continue to shape and involve our politic and where we're going. Um, I wanna see more intersection between the food justice movement and the abolition movement. I'm really excited for what that could look like. Um, I'm really excited for what it could look like um, for the food justice movement to continue to innovate the way it approaches climate change and not on an individual level, but really an approach that holds these huge mega corporations accountable for the evil and reigns of terror they've brought over our communities like Exxon, British Petroleum, Monsanto. Um, yeah, I'm excited for the food justice movement to coalesce around a movement that stands in solidarity with the global South. Um, and farmers of color are around the world, but particularly, especially, and most importantly, farmers on the continent, farmers in Africa, um, and say that food is uh, a method through which we can unseat white supremacy and capitalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's powerful, that's powerful. <laughs> I don't really know how I can follow that up, but I mean, <laughs> I mean just, just to lift up what, what she says, I mean, the USDA is, is racist, I mean, Tom Vilsack is is now, you know, in control of that. Marsha Fudge should have been in control of that. I think it was a senator. You know, she's she's from Ohio. So just a little background. She was in in position to be picked for Biden's cabinet. Biden, Biden picked Tom Vilsack, who worked under the Obama administration, but also worked under the Trump administration, who in connections helps Monsanto, the, all of the people list do, do the white supremacy and colonialism that they do. Now Bill Gates is buying up swaths of land all over the country, right? So white supremacy is gonna do what white supremacy does. Colonialism is gonna do, and, and, and so for me, my angst is like, you know, we, we expect the Biden administration to come. I, I'll give this moment of props because I know a lot of folks think politically uh, I'm against everything, but I'll give him his props for trying to undo a lot of a lot of harm that the previous administration did. But uh, are, 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 is the United States going to then go back and honor treaties that are still violated? Like you're closing uh, federal prisons, but are you going to completely abolish prisons? Are you going to you know are you going to you know lift you know so so we can my my fear is that. Uh, we as a people will become complacent and and say, you know, we we spent whole whole summer saying Black Lives Matter, then we voted for a cop, and we shamed each other for for voting or not voting, right? So for me, it's it's still strategy. It's still taken back. Nothing's 
nothing's remembered, no, nothing's forgotten, nothing's learned, everything's remembered. That is just something that Hoodoo Hussey taught me while at the Black Urban Growers Conference in, you know, uh, you know, in 2018. It's just like we are remembering things that are coming back to us. And the Sankofa again with the strategy. Uh, my fear is that black folks won't won't take it upon themselves to keep learning and keep educating themselves. And for me, uh, I want to keep educating folks. It's inspiring to me uh, to watch. Uh, kids try to outdo me. Like, oh, I didn't, I, I I do aquaponics. So I tell a lot of kids that your fish will probably die when you start your system. Your system has to cycle for a few, you know, four to six weeks before you add, add fish to the water. You want to add, learn the biology of the water first before you add the fish. But students will add fish before that happens and be like, my fish didn't die. You know, you must not know what you're doing. That's what I want to see. These millennials like prove me wrong. Taking it, you know, saying fuck, excuse me, excuse me, saying give, giving a middle finger to patriarchy, uh, you know, giving a middle finger to colonialism, you know, healing intergenerational trauma that has come before us, but also celebrating the 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 victories and the joys and saying you know we're not going to stand for you know colonialism, patriarchy, uh, white supremacy, and we're going to spit in the face of it. So that's. That's where I see it. I'm just really inspired because, uh, by all the, the like the two new faces that are there. So it's like I said, growing growers strategy, bring it back. You know, yeah. So lift up. <laughs> Anybody, Anybody else? else? Well, speaking of Tom Dilsack, um, we know that he was the Secretary of uh, Agriculture under President Obama. And his administration was accused uh, disproportionately of denying loans to black farmers and ignoring the racial discrimination and injustice in the agricultural, especially on the and, and on the African American landscape. How do you feel about uh, what? Well, I think you've you've kind of answered that question just a little bit, uh, uh, Maurice. Uh, do y'all, uh, Eva and Tanisio, do y'all have any other feelings about? Um, about Mr. Vilsack and and what can he do? I mean, what what is it that he? I mean, okay, so he's in the position. Um, so what what contribution? If you were part of his administration, if you were part of Mr. Vilsack's um, uh, staff, what would you recommend that he do first? What would be your recommendations? And I think Maurice, I think you said a lot uh, about it. So you can you can continue. Uh, no, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll simmer. <laughs> we go ahead, Eva. I'll, I'll let you go first. <laughs> um, you know, this question is, it's hard. I, I was snapping and clapping along with what Maurice was saying because I felt the passion through the screen. Um, I spoke a lot last round. I'll be really concise and say just two things. The first being that. I, I know that we have black family members, black comrades in movement, uh, even other black farmers who understand electorism as a really important strategy towards liberation. Um, but I'm kind of sitting at the ballot or the bullet right now. You know, mm -hmm. the United States historically has done nothing beneficial for my people that my people didn't start. And I don't care if you're imperialist is white or a woman or trans or working class and imperialist is an imperialist at the end of the day. Mm. Um, and so going to any administration, let it be Obama, Washington, Bush the first or the second um, for our liberation, um, looking towards those people for our liberation as we've done in like, as we, as I don't know, I wanna say sometime around like Bill Clinton, some some shift happened where we started seeing the United States as some benevolent entity that had just got lost on the past despite uh, 400 centuries of evidence otherwise. And food justice, um, this fight for liberation that's rooted in our connection to the earth through food is so precious to me because there will be no food justice without the dismantling of um, empires. Um, so, uh, Tunisio, I hope you have some great recommendations for this um, 
administration. I, I said I would be short, but like I said, Maurice has the passion. I have the passion. This is a radical black liberation product. Um, and I, I do not see it for us within the US empire. The second thing I was gonna say was Maurice, your earlier comments reminded me how important it is to uplift that there is there will be no successful food justice movement that does not acknowledge that we are on stolen land. We are stolen bodies on stolen land um, and we're all connected to Atlanta. So I really just wanna uplift that we are sitting on stolen Muskegee land, um, unseated Muskegee land, um, and we stand in complete solidarity with indigenous people around the world as descendants of indigenous people. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, no, I must say I wholeheartedly agree with my comrades. Um, you know, I've gotten to a space where my level of, um, you know, disdain, if you will, has 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 led me down a unique path when I would never expect it to be going down. Uh, but I'd like to lift up the spirit of uh, the one and only Chokwe Lumumba uh, because of the work that he was doing with Jackson Cush. You know, what we demonstrated is that there was still an opportunity pursue, to pursue struggle for economic democracy and black self-determination versus or. So this both and approach has been something that we've seen modeled. Uh, of course, they used um, the Jackson push plan to develop cooperatives, to put a heavy focus on urban farming. And so I'm seeing that as a seed that I feel comfortable germinating a little bit. Um, so. One, I would say we don't even necessarily have to wait on the cabinet of Vilsack or the USDA for that matter. Uh, unbeknownst to many of us and myself included until recent years, you know, there are actual advisory committees. There are actual uh, county commissions uh, that have been around for decades that actually take citizens' engagement in the agricultural process and gives it a level of authority within the USDA. And so a recent announcement has been made in which the USDA is actually creating an advisory council for urban agriculture, and they're creating county committees for urban agriculture. Um, and so those are some spaces that I can definitely see many of us uh, placing ourselves just so that we can be a little bit closer to the table again, not to be confused or to be misled into thinking that all of the decisions that are made by the USDA will be dictated by these uh, smaller entities. However, um, it is what it is, you know. I believe in a both-and approach to things. Uh, let it just be straight revolutionary, then one day it may be the bullet. But as I'm going through times where I'm having to interact with policymakers and do a little bit of schmoozing and lobbying, then I have to think like the ballot. And I'm encouraging all of us to be able to play both of those roles as much as we can. Yes. Some specific yes. tasks that I would encourage the uh, Viltac uh, camp to focus on, and this is going to be a long list, so I hope I have time. If I need to be cut short, please stop me. Uh, but several things that I would say could be focused on are one, uh, they could do some commodity checkoff boards. Uh, basically, that's identifying opportunities to increase membership diversity on the commodity checkoff board, and these boards guide the direction of the respective product. Uh, they should reflect the diversity of the consumer base in order to form effective strategies for success. The fact of the matter is this country is becoming blacker by the day. And so these boards need to really be able to think like the actual consumer population that they are supposedly supposed to be supporting through agricultural efforts. Um, I think it would also be very important uh, for historically underserved farmers and ranchers participating in EQIP programs, that's the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, to automatically receive advance payments. And so what that means is that when a farmer goes to the Natural Resource Conservation Service and asks for support, let's say they wanna dig a well and get some reimbursement from the US government, normally they have to put up money up front, show that they put some skin in the game, and then the USDA will cost share that. This recommendation would say, no, give an actual amount of advance payment so that these farmers can use that as a tool of reparations to get some of their agricultural activity started. Um, another thing that could be done is that uh, the farm service agency's guaranteed lending programs uh, could be optimized so that for those farmers that are seeking to uh, take advantage of FSA loans, uh, then the guarantee program will work more in their favor. There's a lot of details around a strategy like that, but that's definitely one that Vilsack would understand because that's already taking place in other communities, so it's nothing foreign. Um, we also need to see the expansion of broadband 
be brought to our communities, even though we've been contextualizing this conversation about the urban environment. The fact of the matter is there are many, many black farmers in the rural, uh, uh, shall we say, peri-urban areas that do not have the opportunity to even get on StreamYard and Zoom like we're doing right now because their broadband systems are totally behind the time. The USDA should be putting some focus on helping those farmers actually get their broadband connections up to speed. I'm going to leave with just the last one. This one is really related to our 1890 land grant institutions. Uh, because politically, what we're not understanding how much the research that comes out of the schools, the land grant schools, whether they be 1860s, 1890s, it's only going to work as well as the funding that comes to those schools. So uh, we need to increase their formula funding. We need to incentivize parity in the matching funding that's done at the state level. Uh, there needs to be some reporting requirements to direct the USDA to provide an annual report to Congress documenting federal to state funding contributions that are, uh, that are actually allocated to those institutions. Also, they need to fix the carryover disparity. So what many people don't know is that if a school like U UGA receives funding in 2020, they have 100% carryover uh, uh, parity to take that money over to the next year. For 1890 schools, i.e. HBCUs, they can only carry over 20%. So there needs to be an actual equity between the amount of money that an HBCU can carry compared to an 1862 land-grant school. Wow. Uh, the last two things that I'll say is that uh, we should fund student scholarships at each of the 19 African-American land-grant colleges. Uh, we need to really fix this disparity between the ageisms of our older farmers and our younger farmers. And so incentivizing uh, African-Americans and people of African descent to be able to go to these schools uh, as a form of reparations that I think needs to be done immediately. Otherwise, we're going to fall into an apartheid state to where we have the minority ruling over the majority as this is South Africa. And last but not least, agricultural and food science facilities uh, need to have their grants reauthorized to upgrade their, their actual facilities so that these schools, again, can compete at the same level as the Texas A&Ms of the world, the University of Georgia, the University of Berkeley, California, which is the behemoth of all land grant schools. We need our schools to have the same facilities and the same quality of production and research as those schools. Uh, and I'd say start with Tuskegee University. So I'm gonna leave it at that. I could go a lot deeper, but I just wanna put those out there. As, I think some low hanging fruit uh, that uh, Mr. Vilsack could focus on. I was about to say, you, you actually answered the question. Like I was going to say, you know, uh, what steps can he take to correct this racial inequality and in, 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 in really pushing equity in, in especially in, in the agricultural program? Uh, just this week, uh, I think um, President Biden introduced the executive order directing, I think he was directing um, the, F, the, the USDA to do just that, to, mm -hmm. to those programs across the board and make sure that that um, that equity uh, is being um, produced in different programs. So but we we have to we have to remember that this is a man who lied about the money he gave to farmers to beat Marsha. He did that to beat a black woman to get the position. That started the crime bill. He. And and she she's not only good at growing food; she's good at distributing food. And and there, there's a big there's a big difference. And and like we waste as farmers globally, we waste four billion pounds of food. And and in in Ohio, she was saving the SNAP program and and helping people double their bucks helping distribute food, helping people gain access, giving agency to people who were low income and were, were not able, poor working black, poor working class, and then black, black working class, black folks and black poor folks. So we're not, we're not fighting for food. We're fighting for food sovereignty because we are in, like she said, we're in an apartheid state. Even said we're, we are, this is food apartheid. This is not, Food. This is. We're not in a food desert. We. This is food apartheid. Deserts are man-made. Or, or excuse me, deserts are not man-made. You know, 
this is food apart. This is a system. This is systematically designed. You know, it's it is there's there's a reason that you go down the street and you see CVS, Kentucky Hut, Pizza, Pizza Taco Bell, blah blah blah. Uh, ev everywhere you go, that's strategic. That is that is designed to to kill us. And so for for me, it's it's not depending on that system. It's growing our own system. It's it's returning to the systems where we're not depending on them to do anything. It's hooking up with people like the National Black Food uh, Alliance, the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, which I, uh, their uh, blackfoodjustice.org is their website. They are right now actively trying to uh, aggregate all of the black farms so that we don't have to, because there's a lot of infrastructure that we already have in place. And a lot of people are trying to build farms. And there are a lot of farms that already exist through that are being uh, closed through eminent domain. Uh, older black farmers are not wanting to, to grow food. Their children are getting educated and leaving and going into the cities, becoming doctors and lawyers and what have you. And they're losing land through, through white supremacy and colonialism. So uh, I've been speaking on this. A lot of people who are trying to build farms and, and want to learn how to farm I really could, I really encourage like just hooking up with again the website is blackfoodjustice.org. Uh, that's the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, and what they do is they organize black farmers and black growers. They're very intentional about and and the coolest thing about it is it's black women and fem and fem led. So uh, and black queer black. Uh, trans women led. So uh, it's very intersectional and is, uh, is very uh, what is needed for right now in uh, educating the youth to, to step up and just do what's needed to do. I think it's only it's going to take people realizing that the system was never built for us to, to succeed and staying on the path of doing for self. I mean, Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, Asada Shakur, they all gave us Fannie Lou Hamer, they, they all, uh, Carver, they all gave us the tools, they all told us what to do. Uh, everybody's like loving Sebi, uh, Dr. Sebi, because of, of the, the way he's moving away from doctor, uh, from Western medicine. We need to keep that going and extend it further and not only, you know, steer away from, you know, steer toward holistic medicine and healing ourselves, but steer towards uh, a completely, uh, completely, you know, uh, decolonizing from the Western system because it's not meant to heal us. It's meant to bill us. You know, they, it's never, they never want, if they heal you, then you stop coming to them. I, I go on obviously, but <laughs> I'm listening. I'm I would well it, it's if I wanted to um, in my final question, then I would say, um, how can uh, and I think you you guys have pretty much <laughs> answered all my questions that I had for tonight. But I, I just want to I would like for you guys to kind of reiterate, like um, in our communities, how as as urban farmers, uh, or or how would you encourage? other um earth, uh, urban farmers who may not necessarily be as informed as you guys are but how would you encourage them to take a stronger stand or what can they do to take a stronger stand maurice you mentioned the black food justice um uh alliance uh there there are and i think uh tenicio you you mentioned a few a few a few things also um it because i what comes to mind to me for example and so on last week, um, we had a show on climate justice uh, and on the climate crisis. And I'm challenging, I challenged everyone as a native Atlantan who um, grew up on the Northwest side, uh, who in my generation, uh, you know, we're the ones that live over in Southwest Atlanta or what I call the new Southwest. And we're in our cushy homes and we're driving our Mercedes and our BMWs and we have our big trucks. Uh, you know, uh, big SUVs. And so I'm saying, uh, I'm challenging them to, hey, park the BMWs, park the Mercedes, buy an electric car. And because we know that Atlanta historically, historically is a, and I, I still use the phrase food desert. I get you. I get you, Maurice. Deserts are, are not man-made, okay? And certainly Atlanta's food desert is not man-made, but historically, there um, that there is a major disparity between um, food availability 
in the, on the south side of Atlanta, okay, versus if I go to the north side of Atlanta. So my challenge to the persons in my community, especially in my generation, is to, hey, start you a box garden, you know, plant you a garden. Why, why get in your car and drive 20 minutes to uh, Kroger's and Publix when you have uh, two or three acres? Your house is sitting on two or three acres of land and you can very easily uh, start your own garden. So these are the things that I'm saying and, and, and how you can improve your your um, the, the quality of your air of the air that you're breathing in your communities by starting a garden. So my question to you guys, because I don't want to do all the talking. I love this energy that you guys are bringing to this discussion. What can people do in their communities to be proactive and, and somehow get to your level of activism and bring that energy to to urban garden and, and urban farming? I can start. OK. I think I'm gonna close by being a little spicy and disagreeing with you, Dr. White. Um, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, but I, I, I love you. That's my soror. And I know that we can hold these really beautiful conflicts and come out with new ideas and things like that. But I think what connects the climate crisis to the crisis of food apartheid, to the crisis of black women's maternal death, to the crisis of negligence in the black community is that the people and the structures that have caused those issues is white supremacy, colonialism, capitalism. Mm -hmm. the, solution, the solution that's been pushed on us is if you just reduce, reuse, recycle, if you just stop eating that slave food, if you just went to a better hospital, if you just, if you just, if you just, and somehow the blame for the conditions of this world keeps falling back on black people. If you just stopped aiding American Delhi, if you just uh, had done better in school, when the reality of it is, I could recycle every day for the rest of my life and I will never not once put a dent in the amount of pollutants and environmental terrorism that the US military has put on the world. You know, I could, I could carry around, I could get every single person I know to carry around a reusable water bottle and that will not change the ways that ExxonMobil and BP have somehow slithered out of accountability for literally dumping poison into the earth's life source. You know, like there is so much we can do individually. We could stop driving cars we want. I mean, our people are already doing the things, you know, Tanisio and Maurice are two people I look up to supreme. Like I have no way to explain how farmers like Whitney J, Elsie Park, Mama Helene, Philomena, like our people are already mm. doing the deep do. Mm. Anna Marie Shreves mm. of Fort Rita is already putting us on the zero waste. You know, we have black doulas out the wazoo. Our people are doing what we need to do. We need mm. to get people at the top. So the actionable solution I have is I need young people, old people, all people, but especially my black people to hop on this abolition wave. Okay. There is nothing we can do individually that will stop the world from being the world. But as a collective, if we agree to say that we know that our ancestors would not steer us in the wrong way, and we're not responsible for the underdevelopment and thefts of our communities, we're not responsible for the rape of Africa, we're not responsible for our health outcomes, as we can see through COVID-19, that we know that doctors aren't believing us. You know, I could eat all the kale, I could eat kale until I'm green in my face, you know? But if I go to the doctor and tell him something feels wrong about my heart, and he doesn't believe me because I'm a black, B, a woman, C, young, it doesn't matter. So I, what I want for my people is to look at abolition, understand the ways that our prisons, our food, our health, our economics are all connected. And the only way we're getting free in any of these spheres is dismantling white supremacy, colonialism, and imperialism. Okay. All righty. Anybody else want to add to that? I'll just close with, you know, really emphasizing you know the the both end approach uh which is really what i heard my sister eloquently describe as she stated we've been doing this work we will continue to do this work at the levels in which we have been doing it uh and i think there's uh, a focus that needs to be placed on you know three pillars fighting healing and building right and so it's very uh easy to silo those and focus wholeheartedly on one without considering the other two. I could say our people for sure have been doing a whole heap of fighting, 
That's all we've been doing, if anything, right? And so now the opportunity, uh, if you will, is in being able to make sure that we also dictate the rules around how we heal ourselves and how we build reality that we are looking for. I appreciate the reference that you made, Dot, to um, you know, this quadrant, Atlanta, that for those who aren't familiar with our map, you know, we are an actual crosshair with 7585 running north-south, 20 running east and west, and 285 is a circle. And in this last quadrant, that is that southwest quadrant, you know, there's a lot of black wealth that's being uh, aggregated into that area. What I am going to challenge those folks, because they are my neighbors, because I am a proud South Fulton resident, uh, right off of Butner and West Stubbs, is okay. they need to really begin to take some of this raw uh, blank canvas land that we have here and begin to develop some of the institutions that we are hoping others do for us. There's really no need to wait for that. You know, we can build our own cooperatives. We can build our own uh, educational institutions. We've already got the municipality run by all Black people. Now it's time to make sure that they are politically thinking Black uh, because right. Black faces in the high places doesn't always equate to power either. So we need to just make sure that we put enough okay. expectation uh, on these parts of our community that definitely have the resources to support uh, this type of expansion. And just really approach this from, again, a, a three-pronged effort. That's, that's our definition of sustainability. I'm going to claim that for the people that sustainability for okay. us is fighting, healing, Manifest. and building. You know, that's our triple bottom line. What are you fighting? What are you healing from? And what are you building? You know, that's the, the teachings of one of our great elders, Baba Kesamati Moyo. And I think it's very important to understand that that trifecta works together, not separately. So uh, what that means for you as an individual watching this, figure out, you know, ask yourself. Uh, definitely link up with us young folks and, and, and we can give you some inspiration and some guidance. But you can't sit still. You can't be an armchair uh, citizen. That, that time is up. Uh, it's time to get involved, get engaged, and either get right or get left. That's right. Agree, agree, agree. And I love this energy again. Uh, thank you guys for being a part of this um, this segment. Uh, I can already tell you, you'll be invited back. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this it, this is an ongoing issue, and um, and I recognize that the problem, it made this the solutions and the problems away yes. in our conversations. Uh, but I think uh, we're, we're, we, I think we can put a, even if we can't put a, a big dent in it, we can at least plant a seed yes. and create some awareness in, okay. in the African-American community. And, and not just our community, but I mean, communities abroad. I mean, not just in the African-American and people of color, um, but th th it's a problem. It's a, like I say, if, if COVID-19 is the pandemic, uh, food injustice is the epidemic. Yes, ma'am. And so in mind, um, I appreciate everyone for being a part of this tonight, this discussion. <laughs> On next week, uh, we, we will be talking about, and, and y'all know that, you know, I am an ordained minister in the African Methodist mm -hmm. Episcopal Church, and I am always giving commentary on what is the, what is organized religion doing? What is the, what are what are our black churches doing, and what role are they playing uh, in, in making sure in mitigating the impacts of all of all of these issues that we have going on? And so, with that, I'll say I'll leave you with the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King that whatever affects one uh, directly yes. affects us all That's indirectly. True. Good yes. night, everyone. And um, I hope to see you all. Um, I have to hope to tune into our podcast, uh, read our blog. Uh, we're uh, hit us up on Instagram, and we will respond back. Thank you. Welcome to Perspectives On, where we're giving the world a voice. We are a faith-based social justice forum where individuals give their perspectives on various topics. It's an opportunity to express their viewpoint, their stance, and their angle on justice issues affecting the community and globally. Each episode features guests presenting their perspective on things like climate change, the church, urban farming, and food insecurity, all through a unique faith lens. Come 